I would invite you to return, not for the last time forever, but for the last time for a while, to the Gospel of Luke, what started almost two and a half years ago, comes to a completion. It's hard to believe that we started this in 2011. That's kind of strange to me to think about. But uh, we did. Christmas of 2011, I remember mapping out and looking at this gospel and just praying that we could end it around Easter time. And, uh, and the Lord was fit to see us start at Christmas and end at Easter and to walk through this great, um, great gospel you know, one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible here is because of the fact that uh, uh, if, if I were just to just kind of pull topical sermons throughout the year, there'd be many things you'd miss. You'd only get my opinions, how I feel each week. It would just be more of a, a thermometer of what's happening in my life. And, uh, but, but going through a whole book allows you to tackle everything in that book, things that you might not ever pick. And and have to wrestle through some hard sections and things like that. And, and so we believe in doing that, preaching uh, through whole books so that we can understand everything that is in them. And, uh, and this has been a long one because 24 chapters is a lot to go through. But, but it's been a great experience. And for me personally, I wrote down a couple things that really impacted me, just studying through Luke and things that I didn't think, um, things that... That, that I was challenged in that, in one sense, were surprising for me, things that went deeper. Uh, what really impacted me personally in studying the Gospel of Luke was uh, how important it is to take Jesus' words to follow him. Like, it just had hit me personally that, you know, you've heard me say this many times through our study of Luke, you're either all in or you're all out. And, and it just, that really impacted me in studying Luke. Another thing that really impacted me was uh, just really getting an understanding of God's heart for the world. Luke is such an evangelistic gospel and a vision to seeing people who are outside brought in. And God's heart for the stranger. And God's love for people who, who were not part of, of, of those that had been revealed truth from when they were children. And, and they get to be brought in and, and welcomed into the family. That really impacted me greatly. Another thing that impacted me was just an understanding of spiritual warfare. That spiritual warfare is really the, that which uh, is that, that, that voice inside of you that says, the cost is too great in following Jesus. Don't do it. It costs too much. And realizing that's spiritual warfare. You know, spiritual warfare is that, that voice telling you that disobedience is better than obedience. And realizing that that hits us a lot. And, and, uh, and just understanding a little better the kingdom of God is another thing. So those are just some things that impacted me. And, and I hope that you have your things. And if there are things that impacted you through the study of Luke, I'd love it if you just emailed them to me. Just things that hit you that, that, that Luke said that really made an impact. And, uh, and I would love to, to hear that. Um, but we are now here in this last section. We're not done with Luke yet. We haven't gotten to verse 53 yet. So we need, we need a, a little bit more time to unpack this. And, and we're looking at Jesus' appearance now to the 11. And, uh, and then what leads him from that moment all the way to his ascension. And these final words. Oftentimes this is called like the Great Commission section. The section where he tells people to go into the world. But it's actually a lot more than that. This is a section which when Ted read it, I'm sure you saw... 
that Jesus is saying, I want you to be witnesses of this. This message is to go to Jerusalem and to the whole world. And, and you can hear that. And you know that the Gospels oftentimes end with this commission to go to the world. But, but there's actually more in here than this. In fact, as I was looking at this, it really impacted me that what is in this passage of Scripture is the answer to four really important questions. Because remember, Luke's goal was to write a letter to a guy by the name of Theophilus to tell Theophilus, hey man, I want you to know for certain about the things you believe. You have faith in God, but I want you to really be anchored in these things. I want you to have a certainty. You trust Jesus. You trust him as Lord, Savior, as the one who died and rose, but I really want you to know what that means. I want to unpack this. I want you to know for sure. So when Luke is going to give us the, this commission at the end, the sending of the, of, the, of, of the disciples into the world, he's not just going to tell them, go, and have just a, a reference of them going. He's going to give us certainty about several important things. And the certainty that he gives us involves four areas, and I just framed them into four questions, and that's your outline this morning. Four questions that, that I think people ask all the time. And I think this passage answers them. Here are the four questions. The first question is, how do you understand who Jesus is? Right? How do we really know who Jesus is? Lots of debates about Jesus, lots of conversations about Jesus. How do you really know? And how do you really know for sure that what you believe about Jesus is right and accurate? Lots of theologians out there saying lots of different things about Jesus. Lots of people standing right now at this very moment in pulpits all around We'll just say United States at this point because of time zone issues, right? But, but all around the United States saying lots of things about Jesus. Who's right? How do you know? How do you know who Jesus is? This passage gives us an answer to that. This passage gives us an answer. How do you read your Bible? Lots of people preaching, using the Bible in lots of different ways. You can turn on a radio. You can turn on television, see people using the Bible in a multiplicity of different ways. Who's right? How do you know? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to say that I believe in Jesus? I believe he died and rose from the dead. What does that mean for your life? This passage answers that. And the final thing that this passage gives us some light on is worship. We know worship is quite a debated topic. It has been since I was a kid. And I bought my first Keith Green record. Right? And people saw the frizzy hair on Keith Green and thought, this guy can't be of God. Look at his hair. Right? Right? This has been an issue. What is worship? Well, this passage will give us some insight into that. You see, Luke isn't just going to give us a commission. He's going to give us certainty about the things that we believe. And I, I want to go through this. I want to look at these four questions with the goal of kind of ending with certainty. This is what we believe and this is why we believe it. So, let's jump into our first question. How do you understand who Jesus is? Look at verse 36. Let me read 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Now this is a very important section. Can't let this moment pass you by. Now you got to put it in its context. Verse 36, you know, even though this is where we're starting our sermon, we're just abruptly cutting off what we left off last week. What happened last week? Right? Jesus uh, has risen from the dead. The, the women went to go put the spices on him. He wasn't there. The angels were there telling him, he's not here. What are you doing here? Why in the world are you even here to begin with? You shouldn't be here. He should have never made these spices. What are you talking about? He told you that he was going to rise from the dead. Oh, yeah, he did. Right? He kind of remembered after the fact. And then... Jesus is walking along, and he comes across the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, goes to their house, tells them the whole Bible, breaks the bread. They see that it's him, and they realize this is the resurrected Savior. This is the one. He rose from the dead. So they ran, the two people from Emmaus, we know one of them's name is Cleopas, they run to where the 11 are hanging out, probably the upper room where they had the Lord's table. They're up there. It's Sunday night. Eleven disciples are there, and the two people from Emmaus are sitting around, and the two people from Emmaus are telling them, you wouldn't believe what happened. We walked down this road. We saw this guy. It turned out to be Jesus. He really did raise from the dead. He's risen indeed. This is great. They're perplexed. The eleven are like, ah, we have no clue what's going on. They're having this conversation, and boom, Jesus is in the room with them. Now, just notice something. I'll give you a little Bible study tip. Whenever things are mentioned twice in the Bible, that's meant for emphasis. English, we kind of say get rid of redundancy, but in other languages, redundancy is important. So it says that they were startled and frightened. You say, isn't that a redundant statement? No, that's just, you know, we'd say seriously freaked out is how we would say that. Okay, they, they, the 11 are not tracking with the resurrection at this point. They're just not tracking with it. So they're hearing all this evidence. They don't know what to do. Jesus is in the room. They're freaking out, and he greets them with the Jewish greeting. Shalom. Now, I just want to tell you, uh, shalom means peace, but I want to just tell you what that means. Okay, don't think like 60s, peace, man, right? It's not that kind of thing. When we're talking about peace... We're talking about the peace of God. If you want to put a synonym to it, I'll give you a synonym you could use. You could use the word rest. Meaning, rest in God. Peace of God. May the rest of God come upon you. May you relax knowing God loves you. He's in control. Shalom. They're freaking out. He walks into a room, or appears in the room, doesn't walk in, he just appears there, and he says, Shalom. Good words, right? I mean, there's lots of words Jesus probably could have said, like, hey, dummies, what are you thinking? You know? But instead, shalom, rest, men, relax. They're not relaxing. They think it's a ghost. They think it's a ghost. And of course, what does Jesus do? He says, why are you freaking out? I am not a ghost. Does ghosts have skin? I mean, I'm sure... Somebody in their mind is thinking to themselves, uh, yeah, but you kind of just appeared in the room here. <laughs> you know, like, 
that's a little weird, you know, like, I see the flesh and everything, but that kind of element of just showing up somewhere is a little weird, right? I mean, so, so I just give him a little grace there. I'd be freaking out too if all of a sudden, boom, he's in the room there. But he says, look at me. And he shows him his hands. He shows him his feet. They still, verse 41 says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That's kind of awkward. And so let me kind of put that maybe in a way that makes sense to you. While they were thinking to themselves, this is too good to be true. That's what they were thinking. That's what it means to kind of disbelieve with joy. It's too good to be true. Could it really be him? Could it really be him? This is too good to be true. This would be the coolest thing if this were true. That's the idea. That's what's going on. They're not settled yet. They're not settled yet. So Jesus settles it. I'm not a ghost. This isn't some spiritual moment here. I haven't been conjured up and just I'm showing up from the grave. I really was physically raised. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to eat some fish. And it will not ooze out of my body when I eat it. Okay? I'm going to go through my digestive tract the normal way. Okay? That's what he's doing. I I really was raised from the dead. Now, why go to all these great pains to show us that Jesus literally was raised from the dead, physically raised from the dead? Why does Luke do, do, do all that he does in 24 to prove that Jesus was risen from the dead? Is it risen or raised? I don't know which one is right. I need a grammarian to tell me. Raised from the dead? Risen from the dead? It doesn't matter. No one knows. You're all just looking at me with a blank stare. <laughs> Has risen. Thank you. Okay. So he... Uh, I'm already lost. He raised, whatever it is. I'm, he raised, rose, raised. <laughs> I'm obsessing on something pointless, aren't I? Okay. So here's, yeah, move on. Thank you. <laughs> so here he is. Why does Luke make this point, this strong point about Jesus? Why? Because I want to tell you something. And this is key to understanding the New Testament. Very critical. The resurrection of Jesus is the way we're to understand Jesus. Let me kind of explain this to you. You can go through the Gospels and you could write down everything Jesus said. A lot of people have done that. Write it all down. Make a whole list of all of Jesus' teachings. You can take all those teachings, you can put them down, and then you could do as like the Jesus Seminar did about 20 years ago. A bunch of people got together and voted on which ones they agreed with and which ones they didn't agree with. Right? Because that's our culture. You know, we like to like like things and not like things, right? That's our whole culture. I like it. I don't like it. Right? Our entire culture is just about like what everybody feels about something. You hear a news report. What happens in a news report? 70% of Americans think this is wrong. Therefore, it must be wrong. Assuming 70% of Americans can get it right. Right? But that's what we do. We just like it or dislike it. If they like it... So is that what we're supposed to do? Take all of the teachings of Jesus and then just pull out the ones we like and then excuse the ones we don't like? And what do we do with all the things that he said and how do we understand it? What the New Testament teaches us is that the first thing you have to understand is that Jesus died, was in the grave, and then on the third day was actually raised from the dead. Physically. It's true. Now, if that is true, that says a lot about him. You're going to have to take him very seriously. But also what it means is that every 
teaching. Everything that he said has to be seen in light of the cross. We can't understand. We, you know, if you just put a whole list of things down and then try to decide which ones you like and don't like, you don't even understand the points until you understand the cross. The cross is what explains everything. The cross is what puts it all in perspective. The reason why the disciples couldn't get it is they hadn't seen the resurrected Savior yet. Now that he's resurrected and in front of them, now Jesus, as we're going to see in a few minutes, is going to say, now take everything that I said, everything that the Bible teaches, everything that's in the Old Testament, and now run it through the lens of what just happened and let that explain it to you. Now you might say, Steve, could you practically unpack that for me? I will. Let me give you an example of this. We might hear Jesus say something like, love your enemies. Okay? Now, we can comprehend what that means. Love your enemies. And we can talk about it. We could have a seminar on it. The love your enemies seminar. And we can talk about what is an enemy and what is love and what are five ways you could practically love your enemy. Right? You can do all that. The reality is, if we're just talking about it on an academic level, we can have all kinds of explanations and and descriptions of it. But now, put it face to face and get a real enemy in your path. Somebody who's really out to get you. Somebody's really out to hurt you. Somebody that you can't trust, and if you're vulnerable around them, they'll abuse the daylights out of you. Now, what does love your enemy mean? Well, it could be easy to say, well, Jesus didn't mean it in this situation. Right? Be easy to say that. Well, in this situation, it's different. This has to be the exception. Now, you see, that's how your, where your mind's going to go if you forget the cross. Why? Well, a couple things to realize. Number one, Jesus died, conquered sin brought justice to a situation, and was raised to new life with power. And that very power we have access to. Which means that when I have to go love my enemy, I can't do it in the flesh. The only thing my flesh wants to do is hurt my enemy. That's what my flesh wants to do. At least run from them at best and hurt them at worst. Right? But then if I start thinking, wait a minute. Jesus loved his enemies, and he died for them. He hung on a cross, and there's Roman soldiers cursing at him and throwing things at him, and they pulled his beard out and put a crown of thorns on his head, and he's hanging there going, Father, forgive them. Punish me in their place. Okay, first of all, mine can't be the exception. Right? If the cross defines what it is, there is no exception. But secondly, though, Jesus died to forgive me of the fact that I want to hurt my enemy, And Jesus rose to give me the power to love my enemy. So now I can go to the cross, to the power that say, Jesus, that very power that raised Christ from the dead, I need it now. I need it now. You see, if I'm not thinking through the lens of the cross, you know what will happen? I will excuse away all of the teaching of Jesus. I won't understand it. I'll come up with all the exceptions, all the rationales, all the reasons why. But then I'm driven to the cross and I realize two things. Jesus died to forgive. Jesus rose to give life and power. 
And Jesus has called me to share in that same suffering and that same glory that comes. Loving my enemies does mean at times to be hurt. Loving my enemies does require me to get hurt. But I have the hope of the resurrection. And I have the hope not only of the power to to love, but I also have the hope that when I leave this world, I'll get a resurrected body like his, which will be both physical and spiritual. He had a spiritual body. Boom, he could just show up in a room. He had a physical body he could eat. And I'm going to get a spiritual and physical body too that will allow me, as Revelation 21 says, when the new heavens and new earth come together, kingdom of God comes down, kingdom of the world come together, and there is God present And I'll be able to, in a spiritual sense, have total communion with God and then sit down over here and eat an apple. And I can do all of that in this resurrected body, which means I got a great day waiting for me. So if loving my enemy means losing my life, so be it. I've got the hope of the resurrection. See, you can't understand Jesus until you realize he has literally been physically raised from the dead. You just can't. This is why Paul, in Acts 17, you see him in a synagogue in Athens, reasoning on the resurrection. The great Mars Hill discourse is a discourse on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? You can't understand Jesus without the cross. You can't. So, how do we know who Jesus is? Look at the cross. He died. He rose. That is where meaning comes from. And it's through the cross that we interpret everything else that Jesus said. So there's the first question. Second question. Let's look at the second one now. How do you read your Bible? Lots of people out there doing lots of different things with the Bible. How do you read your Bible? What do we do with it? Well, let's look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's eaten, and then he says, guys, in essence, if we were to paraphrase, he says, guys, for three years we walked around Galilee, and I taught you from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's another way of just saying the Old Testament. I taught you the Bible. And I told you that all these things that the Bible pointed to, I was going to fulfill. Someone's coming to crush the head of the serpent. That was me. A seed of Abraham is going to come and bring blessings to the world. That was me. A great, great prophet was going to come that that Moses talked about who was going to lead the people. That was me. The the, the great king of David, the the one who's going to come through the line of David, that was me. The lamb that was going to be sacrificed in your place, that was me. Everything that's in the Old Testament, I fulfilled. When you look at the Old Testament, you're not looking at a series of laws and rules that you have to use to make yourself acceptable to God. What you are looking at is, is a, what the Messiah is going to have to do to make you acceptable to God. That's what you have to understand. These laws and these rules are everything that Jesus did to make you acceptable before God. And he's saying, I fulfilled it. I did it. 
I obeyed every law. I fulfilled every promise at the cross. That's where I did it. Guys, that's what I've been trying to teach you now that he's. But then notice verse 45. Notice what happens in 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, whew, I can't imagine what that moment must have been like when all of a sudden the Old Testament makes sense. Now you say, why now? What's, it, what's, what's being said here? Well, let me kind of answer that. We'll answer these, those two questions. Why now? What's being said here? Let's answer the, the second one. What's being said here? What's being said here is this. Studying the Bible and understanding the Scriptures is not just an academic exercise. You can study Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and you can diagram all the sentences all you want. And you can, but the bottom line is that you need divine illumination. You need Jesus and open my eyes. Show this to me. I need to understand how this points to you. I will say this, personally, there are times when I'm looking at a passage of Scripture and I'm a little confused by it and I will literally pray, Jesus, show me this. Help me to see this. This isn't just an exercise in, in, in hermeneutics. You know, just There's a spiritual dimension. They need to have their eyes open to see that the Old Testament points to Jesus. But why now? Why would he open that? Why wouldn't he do it when he started the process? Hopefully, you can answer that question if you think about everything I just said. Why now? Because now Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's literally before them in his resurrected body. And now they have a death and a resurrection. They have the cross right there in front of them. And now he can open their eyes and then. I believe what you have kind of going on in verse 44 through the end of the chapter is everything Jesus taught over the 40 days he was with them. I don't think this was one lesson. But now all of a sudden, he's giving them the Bible lessons again for the second time, saying, okay, let's go back from Genesis to Malachi, and let me show you how I fulfilled it all in the cross. Let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. Let me show it to you so you can get it. You can get it. I want you to see it. That this is not a bunch of rules on how you get to be made holy before God. This is what I had to do to make you holy before God. This is what I had to do, and I want to show you how it points to me. And so he unpacks it for them. He opens their eyes, and look at verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see, the, he's saying, when, when you're there in the Scriptures, what you have is a message that the Messiah has to die. But God is going to accept that forgiveness and raise him from the dead. And now the whole world needs to hear that that is the way you're right with God. There's no other way to be right with God. There is no other way. There's no other path. God will accept no other means other than the cross. And what you have then in the New Testament is the New Testament is just explaining to us the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. It's not another book. 
It's not like, well, the Jews got it all wrong, so now God's going to try it with the Christians. It's actually explaining to us what this means. That's Peter. He got this. In Acts chapter 10, he's preaching to a, a Roman soldier named Cornelius. Gentile. Guy's not knowing the Old Testament at all. And he says to him in Acts 10, 43, he's talking about Jesus. He says to him, or about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's saying, listen, this Jesus that I'm telling you about, the Old Testament tells us that if you trust in him, you'll be saved. When I read my Old Testament, I'm reading a, a gospel book telling me that through Jesus, through Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, through Jesus being the promise to Eve, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Moses, the promise to David, through all that he did, all of his death, all of his punishment that was rested upon him, and through his resurrection, you can be saved if you trust in him. The good news is that you can't keep one law because you've already violated them all. You're already sinful. You were born with a sinful heart and you acted on that sinful heart as soon as you could. That's what you have. You have no hope because the wages of sin is death, but you do have hope. Jesus did what the law required, died and rose. There's life in him. How do you read your Bible? We read our Bible not as a book about us, but a book about Jesus. It's not a book that gives me principles for living. It's a book that points me to Christ and his life. Christ and his death. Christ and his resurrection. And his wisdom and his life and all that we have in him. But that only comes through divine illumination. God needs to open our eyes to see that. So, our first question how do we know Jesus is through his resurrection? How do we read our Bible? We read our Bible as a book about Jesus. And all that he did, and all that he's doing, and all that he will do. Look at our third question then. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Look at verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Now, the, these things he's talking about is you are witnesses of not only his death, his resurrection, and the reality of what they just saw there, but how the whole of the Old Testament points to that. You're to, you're to bear witness to these things. Now, I mentioned this before, but the word witness is literally a Greek word that you will know when I say it. It is the Greek word martyr. What the word originally meant, before the Christians got a hold of it and reinterpreted it, which is an amazing thing, what it originally meant is somebody who would bear testimony to something. Let me put it in a really simple way that we would understand this. How do you know a Green Bay Packer fan? Because they like to wear cheese on their head. Okay? Right? They do. They put those cheese things on their heads. And they walk around with it. And they're not walking around with it because they go, go cheese! Right? <laughs> we love cheese so much we wear it on our head. They wear these foam cheese things on their head because they're Packers fans. It's what they do. They're bearing witness to that. No matter how crazy they look, that's what they're bearing witness to. Okay? There's a little dig there, sorry. Okay. <laughs> a little bear's moment that took over, I'm sorry. Okay. That's what bearing witness means. It means that I 
want to identify with something. And I want everybody to know this is what I identify with. The word martyr could be used this way, too. Somebody wants to identify they're successful, so they get a fancy sports car, and they wear fancy clothes, and and they walk around flaunting all their stuff. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to bear testimony, I am rich and successful. Whatever it is, whatever signal you want to send... Right? If you go walk around any high school, you'll see kids walking around with their, their whatever, letterman jackets and things like that. I'm a jock. Or they're walking around with their long hair. I'm, you know, I'm a rocker. I don't know what the terms are, right? I'm showing my age, maybe. Right? I, wanna ident- I want people to see that I'm this kind of person. That's a martyr. What you identify with. Now he's saying, guys, you are now going to identify with me. That all truth, all life, all teaching, everything comes through me, my death, and my resurrection. You will be my witness of these things. You'll be my martyr. So witnessing, it doesn't mean this. Witnessing doesn't just mean that you're going to stand on a street corner going, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? What it means is, no, my entire life is so marked by this that everybody would know that Jesus is everything to me. Identify with it completely. Just like I send a signal of, by the car I drive or the, whatever it is, the, things that we, the signals we send out in life that try to define us. So he says, now listen, you're my martyr. Now, here's the amazing thing that Christians is they redefine the term because, of course, telling everybody in the world there is no other way to get to heaven other than through Jesus. There's no other way to please God and all other ways are wrong is not popular. So you go to somebody and they say, well, you know, I, I worship these gods over here. There's no life in those gods. Only life comes through Jesus. You can't say that. That's unfair. How would you know? Isn't that bold? Hey, it's what the scriptures declare. And Jesus was literally, he rose from the dead. There's the evidence. You can't say that to me. I'm going to kill you if you don't stop saying that. Fine, kill me. It's true. They were willing to be witnesses unto death unto death. They took their martyrdom to the point of death, so much so that thousands of believers are getting killed over the course of a couple hundred years, and it redefined the term martyr to someone who dies for a cause, which it never meant that. It always just meant what you identify with. And it was the believers that redefined that term. It was the believers. Now you say, how in the world could you be a martyr? How could you identify with Jesus unto death? Look at verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. He's saying, you guys hang here because I'm going to send you the Spirit of God that will empower you to be that kind of witness. You can't do it in the flesh. You put a gun to somebody's head, it freaks everybody out, right? Somebody wants to kill you, how do you know you'll stay firm? Because God says, I'm going to send you my spirit, he tells you. I'm going to send you my spirit, and you'll be able to stay this unto death. That's the power of the spirit. The power of the spirit is that which keeps you identifying with Jesus as far as it, as it needs to go. As far as that journey takes you. And you're going to get that power to do that. Now, the reality is that when you read your New Testament, you realize it wasn't just these handful of believers that were given that commission, but they passed it on to us. 
When we talk about the mission of, of the gospel, what we're saying is I am willing to identify with Jesus all the time, everywhere, wherever it takes me, to the ends of the earth. I want the people who don't know, I want the people who are lost in darkness to be able to understand there is no life in religion. There is no life in ceremonies. There's no life in dipping yourself in a river somewhere. There's, no, there's only life in Jesus. He rose from the dead so that you could stave off the wrath of God and be given life and a resurrected body. I want people to know that. The hope of life and the hope after this life. And he's saying identify with it. Everywhere you go, to the ends of the earth, make sure the world knows it. And how could we not take it to the ends of the earth if we know such good news and we know people are, are lost and dying and in need of this message? How could we sit here and say, no, God hasn't called me to do that. He's just called me to hang here with other people who already believe it. How could we hold on to that? Jesus was saying, don't have that kind of heart. That's dangerous. Once you know you have the message of life, send it out, is what he says. So, how do you know Jesus is? By his resurrection. How do you read his Bible? By understanding it points to Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? To bear witness everywhere, all the time, to the four corners of the earth. Lastly, what is worship? Notice what happened. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And he returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So he takes them out, outside of Jerusalem. I don't know what the blessing would have been, but it was a power, you can imagine how powerful a moment it was. And then he literally was lifted up into heaven and they fell on the floor and worshipped Jesus, which means that they understood he's God because they would not have worshipped anyone else other than God. And they worshipped him. They bowed before him. And then they come into Jerusalem, and notice we've got two words, great joy, right? They are bubbling over. I mean, they went from serious freak out 40 days earlier to overflowing joy. And what happens? They got this overflowing joy, and then it says they were continually in the temple blessing God. The temple, where the curtain was torn in two, you can imagine the chaos amongst the Jewish leaders trying to fix it, but they knew what it meant. And the temple with the very religious leaders that, that sought to execute Jesus. Right? They're going into the, the place where the people hated Jesus. But they went in and they worshipped. Continually. Meaning often. All the time. They just kept going in there offering their praise to God. Probably going right to the Holy of Holies saying, we can walk in here now. We have access to God through Jesus. And they praised God and praised God and praised God. And they continued to do it. And what I love is that this book ends with worship. It actually begins and ends in a temple. If you look at the beginning of the book, it begins in a temple and it ends in a temple with worship. But I want you to notice something about the worship here. In fact, five observations, quick observations I want to make about worship because I want you to see something. Sometimes we narrowly define worship in just the, the forms of music. Right? We, we have it brought, broken down into a musical discussion. And we kind of discuss that. Like I said, we, you know, I remember my first Keith Green record and his curly, wild hair. 
And, you know, back then everybody said, yeah, you guy can't have long hair and play the piano that wildly, you know, and with drums like uh, Keith Green too, right? I mean, how, how mild is that today? But anyway, <laughs> you know, but it was like crazy and I bring it home and, and people, this isn't worship and you can't worship God this way. And then you stop and you realize, wait a minute, maybe that is too narrow of a debate. Maybe we're defining worship solely in terms of, notice, what is not mentioned here is anything about music. There are five things mentioned here. What drove their worship? I think five things did. First, seeing who Jesus really is. Worship is driven, not by the style of music, worship is driven by seeing who Jesus is. He's the one who was raised from the dead. He literally rose from the dead. That means something. And we get excited about that. Secondly, Worship is driven by the scriptures understanding then that this Jesus was proclaimed and understood in the scriptures. And so we see the scriptures and we let the teaching of Jesus fuel us. Thirdly, they get to be witnesses of this to the world. They get to, they get to be given the testimony of Jesus everywhere they go. They get to bear witness that he literally died and rose and there's salvation. Fourthly, expecting the work of God in the world, believing in the Holy Spirit, believing this power is going to come, the promised one is going to come, and he's going to fuel us to be his witnesses and to proclaim his name. And fifthly, realizing that Jesus is God, right? They saw him, as soon as he raised from, was ascended in front of them, they dropped down and began to worship. He is God. Those are the five things that are the essentials to worship in this passage. Everything else is a side argument. This is what's essential. This is what worship is. So even if we get it right, even if we get to heaven and God says, you nailed it, man, that's exactly the musical style I wanted. Right? You figured it out. If you don't have these five things, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And we've got to keep our eye on that ball. I read this and I say, that's how I want to worship God. I want to be so enthralled with Jesus and so enthralled with being his witness and so enthralled with expecting the power of the Spirit of God to that fuel me to make his name known and to have the courage to do it and knowing that the one I believe in is God. And then whether you do that with a ukulele and an auto harp, <laughs> doesn't matter now. This is worship. And this is how the book ends, with the disciples worshiping Jesus and worshiping the Father. So, our study of Luke draws to a close. Four great questions answers. How do we know who Jesus is? By his resurrection. How do we read our Bibles? By understanding it points to Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian, to be, bear witness of this to the world? And what is worship? Being filled with the awe and the joy of Jesus. So there are four things that I would want to leave you with today. Four things for you to embrace. And I think these would be the four anchor points of the whole book. And here they are. May we embrace his resurrection. May we really believe that he rose from the dead. That he fulfilled everything at that moment. May we embrace his message. 
When I, what I mean by that is that the scriptures then unpack that for us. And when we're going to the Bible, we're not going to the Bible to try to figure out how to apply things to my life. I'm going to the Bible to say, show me Jesus. Let me be so enthralled with him. Let that anchor me. God, free me from narcissism and let me be Christ-focused, not self-focused. This isn't about me. This is about Jesus. Let that fill me up. Let's embrace that. Let's embrace his mission that we get to bear testimony of this to the world. Think about it. Us here, small little town like ours, yet God says you can have an impact, a worldwide global impact, starting here and going everywhere. And let's embrace his glory. That's what fuels our worship. Let's be enthralled with Jesus. With Jesus and only Jesus. Would you bow your head with me? I thank you for this great book, Father. The way Luke shows us Jesus. God, our our love of ourselves makes us want to make everything about us. May we make much of him. God, we need to repent of our self-focus and our narcissism and our our lack of trust in you, that we don't think that the Spirit has power, and we don't believe that, that there's, a, there's a hope beyond the grave, that we get stuck in the moment, we get caught up in petty arguments. God, free us from that and allow us to walk in the boldness. You've been risen from the dead. You've given us life. You've given us power. You've given us your Spirit. And the hope that that same body that you've been given, we get when we die. Lord, may we be filled with Christ today and embrace what it means to be his. In Christ's name, amen.